Welcome to Speak Up, the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. This podcast series highlights conversations with esteemed contributors in the speech pathology space. We explore key issues in the profession in a short and easy to listen to format. This episode features Professor Pamela Snow and SPAR's Mary Woodward. Today, Pam and Mary talk about the role of speech pathology in the youth justice system. Let's have a listen. Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode in Speech Pathology Australia's Speak Up podcast series. I'm Mary Woodward, Speech Pathology Australia's Senior Advisor, Justice and Mental Health, and today I'm privileged to be joined by Professor Pamela Snow. As I'm sure many listeners know, Pam is a speech pathologist and a registered psychologist and is currently head of the Latrobe Rural Health School at the Bendigo campus of Latrobe University. She has conducted extensive research over the last couple of decades on vulnerable young people, particularly those in the youth justice system, out-of-home care and alternative education settings. Welcome, Pam. Thank you, Mary. It's lovely to be with you. So come on then, Pam. How did you come to be involved in, in work with young people in the justice system? Well, Mary, it's a story that goes back quite a lot of years now. It um, goes back to 1999, in fact. Um, I'd not long completed my PhD, which was in the area of acquired brain injury. And I was working as a research fellow um, with the Australian Drug Foundation, doing research on um, drug and alcohol um, misuse and risk factors in relation to young people. Reading the literature, the adolescent mental health literature about risk and protective factors in adolescence. Um, and in particular, I, I remember a, a, um, a particular day when I was looking at a list of risk and protective factors in relation to adolescent mental health and quite prominent on the both the risk and the protective side of the ledger was academic achievement. So yeah. Yeah, people who um, achieve well, that's a protective factor. Young people who struggle struggle academically, that's a risk factor. Um, And uh, what we know now and knew then, in fact, was that risk and protective factors are cumulative on both sides of the ledger and they exist at the level of the individual, the family, the school and the community. So what leapt out at me, I guess, wearing my speech pathology hat was um, that this notion of academic achievement being so important as a um, a risk and or protective factor, whichever things you want to put over it. Mm. And that got me thinking about the factors that promote academic success. Uh, And, of course, in order to succeed academically, um, you need to have strong language and literacy skills. Of course. Uh, so if we keep peeling the onion, who are the children who perhaps don't have strong language and literacy skills? And um, I, I guess by applying some version of Occam's razor, <laughs> that got me thinking about the most vulnerable young people in our community who are, of course, young people who are um, in the youth justice system, whether they're on um, custodial orders or on community-based orders. They really embody the notion of risk. That got me thinking about um, uh, the possibility of looking at the language skills of young people in the youth justice system. I wasn't the first person to do this. I went looking in the literature and found that there was a little bit of literature, nothing in Australia, 
Um, a couple of people elsewhere in the world were, um, were starting to look at it. But I did get a lot of kind of sideways glances and people looking at me through slightly slitty eyes, um, wondering whether I was um, joining the wrong dots when I said I wanted to start um, looking at the oral language skills of this particular population. Mm. So... So what have the key findings been of your, of your research? Yeah, well, we've done a number of studies now in both Victoria and New South Wales, and we've studied custodial samples as well as um, samples of young people who are on community-based orders, which fortunately is the larger proportion of young people in the justice system. And um, what we've identified and confirmed in relation to international findings is high rates of previously unidentified language disorder in this population. Now, I say, I say previously unidentified on the presumption that if these young people had been identified with a language disorder, somebody might have written it down somewhere and been on their files. But unfortunately, we know that um, data and record keeping and data management um, and data transfer across silos is not good with this population. Um, none of the young people who we assessed and, and classified as having a language disorder um, showed any recognition of that diagnosis. Um, and we've, we've assessed several hundred young people now. Now, prevalence rates bounce around a little bit according to different studies and different diagnostic criteria. We've um, erred on the side of um, being quite conservative in the diagnostic criteria that we've applied in our studies and um, we've reported rates between 38 and 52% in our research. I know some of the UK research in particular is reporting much higher prevalence rates, 60, 70%. Um, there's a whole range of reasons why the, the rates might look different, but what we can say with a high degree of confidence is that language disorders are almost um, endemic in this population. Or if you don't like the, that clinical language of language disorders, there are high rates of low language capacity. Mm -hmm. um, population and we can't um, although we know that there are common comorbidities in this population around mild intellectual disability mental health problems and we do need to remember when we're talking about mental health problems that externalizing behavior disorders which is what got these young people into the youth justice system in the first place externalizing behavior disorders are mental health problems um, so we, we sometimes think of mental health problems on the one hand and behavior problems on the other hand behavior uh, mental health problems. Um, so we know there's high rates of comorbidity with all kinds of mental health problems, internalising and externalising. Neurodisability, in particular, the, uh, the literature tells us that uh, a large number of young people in the youth justice system have had an acquired brain injury of some sort, in, in, in cases more than one ABI. Uh, we know that there's very high prevalence of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder from the fantastic research that's been done uh, by Natalie Kippen and uh, Susla Tao and the team in WA recently. Um, so there are lots of comorbidities, but we can't, um, certainly not from our research anyway, we can't say, well, that's the explanatory factor. Uh, and as I understand it, Pam, um, a lot of your research has specifically excluded young people with a known 
intellectual disability or mental health diagnosis? Um, yes, correct. So, well, what we what we have done is um, we, we have excluded young people with a known intellectual disability, and we've used a measure of nonverbal IQ. What we typically find is that our um, a language disordered group of young offenders have a slightly lower nonverbal IQ than the non-language disordered, but it's not a significant difference. Mm. Um, but we, yes, we have, we exclude young people who are acutely unwell from a mental health perspective, but all of them, 100% of them have a history of mental health problems because they've all got or had um, behaviour problems. So given that you've been involved in this field and, you know, certainly being the the lead researcher in in this area in Australia, um, what changes have you seen in the field since since you began? Um, well, people no longer look at me sideways <laughs> when I talk about the kind of research that I do, uh, and of course, you know, this has extended into young people in out of home care and in flexible education contexts as well. So. Yeah. The most pleasing change for me, Mary, has been the heightened level of awareness of um, vulnerability of language skills, language capacity um, in vulnerable populations. And the inverse of that at a public health level being the importance of language competence as a, um, as a protective factor across the lifespan. So if you're linguistically competent when you arrive at school, you've got a fighting chance of crossing the bridge and getting to the other side um, by year three if you get some good instruction and being able to read and write. Um, And uh, if you're linguistically competent, you've got a fighting chance of developing pro-social interpersonal skills and making and keeping friends, which is very good for your mental health. So I think um, speech pathology has um, shifted a bit in the last couple of decades from a purely clinically orientated profession to one that values the significance of language competence um, at a population level, that it's good for a population to have a lot of linguistically competent um, people. I think it's been really pleasing to see the ownership that speech pathology has taken of the youth justice space um, and that, Speech pathology is um, part of the the discourse now in many respects um, in in the youth justice, youth mental health space. So there are a lot of people outside of our profession who get um, what we bring. So they understand that um, an important missing piece um, has perhaps been brought to the table through this research, not just my research, but research that's been done overseas as well. Um, and I, I get a lot of aha experiences, I guess, aha reactions when I present this research to people who work on the ground in the field. It makes sense of what they're seeing, I suppose, isn't it? it makes yeah, sense. and it's a reframe for yeah. them. Yes. So final question, and it is a big one, and I realise that you could probably talk about this for, for, for days, <laughs> but... What do you hope for the future of speech pathology in the justice system? And I suppose how, how you think we might get there. Any tips? 
Well, what I hope is that speech pathology becomes part of business as usual in the system, both in adult corrections and in youth justice. Recognising, and I didn't coin this term, it's a a term that comes out of the international literature, that there is unfortunately a phenomenon known as the school to prison pipeline. And speech pathologists are often in contact with vulnerable young people when they're still in the community, um, still got even sometimes a tenuous connection with school. Um, and they can be part of hopefully identifying vulnerable at-risk young people and um, providing the intervention support that might change their trajectory. Yeah. Uh, there's enough support around the young person. Um, but if we think of the school-to-prison pipeline as unfortunately going all the way through to prison and then um, life beyond prison, Um, I think speech pathologists have an incredibly important role to play at each point in that continuum. Remembering too that we shouldn't be too literal about um, the prison part of that pipeline because being um, excluded from the social and economic mainstream because of your impoverished language and literacy skills is a form of lifelong imprisonment. It's just not a literal imprisonment. Um, So I I think um, a widening of the lens on the part of um, speech pathology is certainly a continued widening of the lens is what I would be hoping for for the future. I'd like to see, and I think this is already beginning to happen, um, speech pathology practice in youth justice being embedded in pre-service preparation for speech pathologists. Not that I necessarily think that it's an ideal, that youth justice settings are an ideal or appropriate setting for new graduates, but I think graduates should see that as a possible um, destination. Yeah. Um, but really speech pathologists working across that whole school to prison pipeline spectrum. Excellent. There's a, there's a long way to go, but it is really exciting to, to see the changes that are already happening in in the justice space and we are we are all indebted to you Pam for for starting those discussions and obviously continuing the discussions but for for really getting the ball rolling in Australia um so thank you for that thanks Mary it has like all things been a, a team effort and it's been fantastic that speech pathology Australia has uh, recognized the importance of this area and you know for example created your portfolio yeah. Um, I think that's fantastic acknowledgement too. Yes, very much so. Well, thank you so much for, for speaking with me today, Pam. It's been a delight as always. Um, and I, I look forward to further discussions with you in the future. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.